Welcome everybody to today's episode. Welcome to the podcast. This week we're doing a People of Science segment. We're going to start that in a second here and we'll, we'll have our talk with Avi Loeb and, and talk about Oumuamua, this interstellar object that came into our solar system and all the evidence that we've seen points to us having to come to a conclusion that we may have to change the way we fundamentally think about life in the universe, which then what kind of effect does it have on us? So this is a really fun episode. I had a great time. This is the kind of stuff that I started. This is why I got into science. This is the stuff I love. Uh, for everyone, you know, that's that's not familiar. My name is Alex Girofanos. I'm an engineer. I podcast on my free time here. We talk about space and science. And I started in R&D, in research and development, doing things uh, in a manufacturing environment for aerospace and trying to do things that no one else had ever done before. There was a challenge. There was a way to do it, but no one had ever figured out how to do it. Um, so that's where I started. That's where I love being on the bleeding edge, poking something and being like, hey, like, w- what happens when I do this? What is what is actually going to happen here? How do I get to my end goal of figuring this thing out? And this whole thing about a muamua and this interstellar object that came into our solar system, and we just had a chance to glimpse at it. And... Like I said, it's amazing, so I hope you really enjoy this. And the phrase I want you to keep in your mind is a quote that you've heard from Sherlock Holmes. It's the same quote you've heard from Spock from Star Trek, and that is, Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. That's what I'll leave you with before we start this podcast. Think about that. Think about how logic will take you places if you actually pay attention to what it's it's showing you of reality and how that changes our mind about what's really going on there. So before we start, again, thank you for, for being a part of this podcast, joining this podcast, listening. If you want to help support us, obviously share uh, our podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube page, uh, share with your friends. Uh, and also, if you want to help us fund all of our cool projects, all of our science projects, our 3D printing lab, AG3D, is here. We brought some of our stuff into reality. Our newest thing is our Mandalorian helmet magnet for your fridge. Super strong magnet. Uh, really cool, like, 3D design for the Mandalorian helmet. You can hold anything, whether it's, you know, even the really thick stuff like holiday cards and things like that. It's great for that. Multiple. So <clears throat> it's a fun gift. It's 8 bucks, and it makes a great gift for somebody and helps support the podcast. So, and we 3D print it for you on demand. You click that button, we run it on our 3D printer, and then we ship it to you. That's that's how we do it here with AG3D. And with Today in Space, and of course we have our rocket ship phone stand, which we're in the middle of trying out some new materials that have some really cool matte looks. So all of those you can find at ag3dprinting.etsy.com. That's our Etsy store. That's where we're doing most of that there. Uh, you can go check that out. There's also a donate button on our homepage at todayinspace.net. We added that. A few people were wondering if there was just a way that people could donate. That is another way you can help fund this podcast, and that helps us fund all the plastic and the the basically what it takes to run our 3D printing lab for our, our projects here, right? This is the Amuamua model that everyone takes as, as, you know, gospel. This is what it is. This is what it would have been if, if the reflectivity of Oumuamua was actually yeah, taken into account. It actually becomes a pancake, but there's even more, and that's where... The we really are so happy we had Avi on this so he could really focus <laughs> my uh, you know uh, all over the place brain into really what the mystery is and the book um, is amazing you can check that out it's in, it's in 
many, uh, pretty much all languages for the most part that would that would buy books. So it's available. It's out there. The first actual scientific evidence of alien life. I say in this in the podcast. I want aliens to exist. I want to learn about them. I I, I am pro alien life being out there, but there's really nothing that I, as a scientist, can go like, yeah, that's good evidence. This is actually evidence, and all it does is open our minds, and there's such a restriction to this idea getting out there that we have to do our duty and bring Avi on. He's also an astrophysicist, so it's not like he's just, you know, some random person on the internet talking about it. He's actually talking about the science and the evidence, and the evidence leads us to this conclusion. So, once again, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. That's our guiding our guiding phrase for this episode and for this this amazing mystery. So please enjoy the mystery of Oumuamua and welcome Avi Loeb to the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Welcome day to Today in Space, your space science podcast. I'm your host, Alex Rifanos. Today, we're doing an episode of People of Science. We, we get to talk to people who have either worked in the industry or are still working in the industry to figure out where that passion for science came from, and then we dive into where did it take them, what did they take away from it, how are they applying science in their real life, and, and that mindset of the scientific mindset, how are they using that in everyday life. So this week, I'm very honored to have on Avi Loeb, the author of Extraterrestrial, uh, and the, the it's one of these things, just to go on a quick rant, Right before I let Avi speak, we talk about a lot the scientific ladder of ideas, and and there's there's hypotheses which are ideas where we're bringing them into the universe, we're trying to ask the question, and then we're getting data to look back and think, are we right? Are we actually looking at reality correctly? And then there are theories which are actually get tested, they flush out, we're starting to realize what reality is, and then a scientific law that is when it it replicates life as as well as we can we can tell what reality is and one of one of the great things that I love are these new hypotheses and, and new ways of thinking. And Avi is uh, one of the people that has driven one of these amazing hypotheses. I'll let him introduce himself so we can talk about this, uh, about the first interplanetary object, Oumuamua. I hope I pronounced that correct. I've been really trying to make sure I got it right. But Avi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so uh, what I want to do is can, can you give folks a quick background of who you are uh, and, and what you do on a daily basis, because you are, to, to say that you're involved in science, I was going to go through the list, I'd, I'd rather you just explain it. There's so many things that you're doing. Well, uh, fortunately, it's relatively straightforward, because my childhood pretty much shaped the way I am today. So uh, in describing where I came from, you can pretty much understand where I am. Um, I was born on a farm uh, and used to collect eggs every afternoon, and uh, go to the hills of the village uh, to read the philosophy books. Uh, I was mostly interested in the fundamental questions uh, about our existence. And at the same time, I was connected to nature, less so to people. I was not uh, a social animal, so to speak. And uh, for that, I married my wife, who connects me to people better. Uh, but um, uh, as a young kid, I really uh, admired the philosophy and the humanities more broadly because they address uh, some of the most fundamental questions. But um, then at age 18, I had to be to serve in the military in Israel. It's obligatory. And uh, 
I chose to uh, continue intellectual work rather than run in the fields uh, with a gun. And so I pursued the physics, which I was good at, and uh, I was recruited to a, an elite program uh, where I could uh, finish my PhD in physics at age 24. And uh, I proposed the project to the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, Star Wars, uh, back in uh, the mid-1980s that uh, President Ronald Reagan initiated. And uh, it was the first funded international project. And that brought me to the US, to Washington, DC. In one of the visits, I visited the Princeton, uh, New Jersey, and I was offered a five-year fellowship under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. So I had to learn the vocabulary. I didn't know how the sun shines. And uh, it took me several years. Uh, and it was a very competitive uh, environment, so made me feel quite bad about myself. Uh, but then uh, there was a position um, advertised at uh, Harvard University, a junior faculty position, and the first person that was offered that job uh, declined it uh, because the prospects for getting tenure at Harvard were extremely small. The previous per person who got it was decades earlier. Uh, and so they offered it to me as the second choice. and. Uh, I wasn't worried about tenure because I could always uh, go back to the farm. I had plan B. Uh, but um, and, and by the way, I still contemplate that because um, very often I think that work in the farm might be more relaxing and uh, fulfilling than work in academia. Mm. Uh, but um, at any event, I was tenured uh, three years later. Uh, and um, then uh, about uh, 14 years after that, I became the chair of the astronomy department for nine years at Harvard. And uh, when I was tenured, I realized that even though I was, uh, my marriage was arranged by circumstances, uh, mm. that in fact I'm married to my true love. Because in astrophysics, we address fundamental questions uh, that used to belong to the realm of philosophy or religion, such as how did the universe start or, you know, when did life uh, form and, and is there life elsewhere? Are we the smartest kid on the block? That's the question I have in my yeah. book. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's quite uh, rewarding to be able to address these questions with uh, scientific tools. But what makes me different from my colleagues is the fact that I don't care uh, how many likes I have on Twitter. You know, I grew up on a farm. I, I'm connected to nature. I pay respect to evidence, not to what people say. And, mm. uh, you know, just to give you an anecdote, um, a few weeks ago, my publicist, uh, told me, uh, great job, Avi, because I had the, by now 300 interviews uh, over the past eight weeks. But just a, a few weeks ago, he was saying, good job. Uh, you are marketing the book very well. It's doing, uh, you know, it's bestseller in many countries. And I said to him, I'm not marketing the book. I'm just, uh, uh, you know, explaining uh, my message to the public. And if the public wouldn't like my message, I wouldn't care less. You know, I'm just expressing what I think is right. And uh, so fortunately, the public likes it and the book sells, but that's a byproduct. Right. So that's the way I operate. I basically try, you know, just like basketball players, I keep my eyes on the ball, not on the audience. Mm. Mm. I, I can't tell you how, how refreshing it is, especially um, having someone from within academia who, who's speaking just... So truthfully, and I love your honesty about where this all stems from, and I think it really comes down to your mindset just in general, and I think why science suits you so well, is you really look for that that basic, what is the rude down version, what is the simplest explanation for, for this? 
And especially after reading your book and, and hearing you speak on Joe Rogan and other podcasts, uh, your openness to changing your mind if things come up. Um, being someone that was in academia with a STEM degree, why why is it so difficult for new ideas to happen inside of a, like an, an industry like academia? Well, you would think that academia was constructed to allow innovation, to encourage innovation, mm. because there is this concept of tenure where people, after they get it, they don't have to worry about their job uh, security and they can, um, you know, take risks um, and, and put some skin in the game, you know, but it's, mm -hmm. it goes exactly the opposite way, unfortunately, uh, where people, once they get tenure, they start to worry about their image and uh, mm -hmm. do not want to take risks and not put skin in the game because uh, then their chances of getting honors, awards, uh, belonging to honor societies, uh, could they get uh, damaged? And um, that's very unfortunate because uh, the scientific process is all about learning. You know, we are learning about nature by paying attention to the experiments. And we need to make predictions in order to motivate uh, new experiments and new uh, collection of new clues about what we're dealing with. And, you know, Albert Einstein was wrong three times in the last decade of his career. He argued that black holes don't exist, gravitation waves do not exist, and mm. quantum mechanics doesn't uh, have spooky action at a distance. And all three were proven wrong by experiments. And, and by the way, quantum mechanics, which was found a century ago, took people out of their comfort zone. Yeah. And so, it, you know, that, that's actually a positive thing because it tells you that nature is, is giving you a gift, that something new that you can learn about mm -hmm. the reality. And if everything was to agree, to line up with what we already expected, science would be extremely boring. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my point is, you know, for example, this object that we will discuss in a few minutes, uh, I remember uh, leaving a, a seminar about it and uh, together with a person that worked on similar, on rocks, you know, for, mm. for decades. And, and he said, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed, <laughs> which to me was appalling because it's exactly the opposite approach. And right. you know, I think that many of my colleagues are resisting the kind of interpretation that I put forward. And, you know, I go through a lot of uh, ridicule and scrutiny and, uh, and I find it to be completely inappropriate. Uh, and surprisingly, in the commercial sector, you find the willingness to innovate, to take risks, Whereas, you know, the commercial sector is all about profit, making a profit. And it's mm. clear that in order to make a profit, sometimes you have to take risks and, you know, go in directions that do not prove successful because one of these directions might prove successful and end up compensating for all the failures. And that is recognized in, in the commercial sector, less so in academia. And, you know, so people ask me, how, how do you want to, to correct this culture, which apparently is not doing what it's supposed to do. And I think there should be more um, reward, rewarding given to people that take risks, that people that mm. innovate. Right now, the system you know, is composed of selection committee that allocate funds to co relatively uh, low risk endeavors most of the time. And, and um, it's all about um, you know, uh, respecting uh, results of the past rather than encouraging discoveries of the future. And, um, right. I think that is one way to change it. Another one is, you know, you wouldn't expect Marie Antoinette to embrace the 
principles of the French Revolution because she benefited from the system that, that uh, the French Revolution wanted to change. Mm. And so, uh, if the car, if the current culture is being, uh, uh, you know, is benefiting uh, the group of people that are supporting it, the only way to change it would be to bring young people with, without prejudice and with a fresh perspective into the system. And so my hope is that my book will encourage young people to change the current scientific culture. I, I am so happy that you're on this mission because uh, there's, a, there's a real need for it, especially, uh, I mean, we, we, we all know what the world is like right now if you're in the future listening to this. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of pandemic and the world was already getting fuzzy before that. So um, I've seen so much, especially in this last year, uh, on on aliens and predictions and all this. And, and, and like, I want to believe I'm, I'm a th you know, I, I like sci fi. I like dreaming about new things and, and, and possibilities. But there's nothing I could like put my hat on other than like a few interviews where I was like, OK, that guy knows his science. He's probably telling the truth. But other than that. There's, there's nothing to do that, and and the the Sherlock Holmes mystery of Omomoa is is fascinating to me, and I, I love it, it's like like you said that your your colleague saying that he wished didn't exist, like those discoveries, those aha moments, like those moments where you you have to think. I mean, I, I worked as an R and D engineer uh, when I first started in the in the commercial sector, my first job. And that was that was the bleeding edge. That was no one else had done, done this before. So you just have to poke it and see what it does. And that's what you were doing with this with this mystery. And everyone kept saying, "Stop looking at it." <laughs> Instead um, of, "Wow, we yeah. should look at this." Well, I, you know, I respect those scientists that looked at the anomalies of Oumuamua. It showed some phenomena that we haven't seen before, and they tried to explain it in terms of a natural origin. And I respect that because that's the scientific process. You put mm. explanations on the table for the anomalies. The, the majority of scientists uh, just make the point that, you know, they don't want to discuss it. Business as usual, it's probably natural and that's it. Well, that's not the way science is done. It's not based on prejudice. It's based on evidence and trying to contemplate what can explain the evidence and then ask, you know, what new clues can we bring to the table that will distinguish between, in this case, an artificial object and a natural object? Mm. And uh, in my mind, there is a simple way to distinguish. You know, we saw this object, Oumuamua, come from outside the solar system, and mm -hmm. there will be more of the same. You know, when I go to the kitchen and I see an ant, I get alarmed because there must be many more ants out there. And so there should be many more Oumuamua-like objects, and we will see another one within a few years, just like we found this one within a few years. And, uh, and so the point is, the next weird object that comes along, we can send a camera uh, that will intercept its orbit and come sufficiently close to it uh, within a, the diameter of the Earth, let's say, mm -hmm. a four-inch camera that will take a photograph of it. And right. you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my sure. case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. <laughs> That's that's amazing. Well, it, and we see evidence of that today, right? The Perseverance rover that just landed recently. Those images being there are such a huge addition, and and it's got that new addition of the microphone. So we're adding senses to to us right. looking out there. Now, the, um, the only reason we might not uh, get evidence is if we assume that we know the answer in advance. And you know that that was the point. mistake made by the philosophers in the days of Galileo. They said mm -hmm. we don't want to look through a telescope because we know that the sun moves around the Earth. 
Uh, and that only, you know, allowed them to remain ignorant. And uh, reality really doesn't care whether we ignore it or not. You know, the earth continued to move around the sun. And my point is science really gives us an opportunity to get information about our environment. In the case that I'm discussing, it allows us to ask, is there a smarter kid on the block? We live in a certain neighborhood. It would be worthwhile finding out, right? And obviously, I mean, if you don't put funds in this direction, if you don't fund it at a level, for example, of LIGO, where $1.1 billion were invested in trying to detect gravitational waves, or, you know, if you don't fund it at a level of the search for dark matter, which is comparable to this, then how do you expect to find anything? You know, right. uh, it's sort of like stepping on the grass and saying, look, it doesn't grow. If you don't fund it, you won't find it. Uh, people often say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. My point is, first of all, it's not an extraordinary claim that uh, we could find technological relics of other civilizations because mm. we know that, um, you know, half of the sun-like stars have a planet like the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So there are billions of Earth-Sun systems uh, in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might get similar outcomes. Why should we be special? So I would actually say that it's a conservative, you know, uh, uh, assumption to make uh, that is common sense that we are not special. But okay, well, even if you accept uh, the idea that it's extraordinary, my point is extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a Greek Orthodox culture. I love my culture. It's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the religion is tied in with the culture. Um, and growing up, I had a lot of questions um, with the faith. And uh, I find myself still questioning today. Um, but it was not a popular thing to ask questions. And it, it's a, you know, it really is an orthodoxy of um, of thought, and and, and so really what you're what you're pointing at here is is that science as an or academic science as an industry is like a, a battleship that is a is a is a huge ship. It's a huge organization, and to get that organization to turn in very quickly on on a new idea that challenges everything that we've thought before is it, like that is the cultural right. like human that is the human effect of people doing science that's just because we're right. humans if we were right. robots well, we wouldn't have that so right that, that's one <laughs> that's one complaint that i have but i have actually a more serious concern and that is you might say okay people are conservative they're slow to move like you're saying it's a giant ship slow to mm -hmm. move but there is another issue which is that uh, a substantial fraction of the mainstream right now in theoretical physics is working on ideas that were ne never tested against experiments in the past several decades and will not be in the next several decades, like string theory, extra right. dimensions, the multiverse. Well, um, and, and they're called theories, which is the the most from for me as a, as I've talked about this in the podcast before. They're not actual scientific theories. They're like theories of of like just a general word. It's actually a hypothesis, right? Yeah, but, but there is no problem with hypothesis as, as long as you can put skin in the game, that you make right. predictions based right. on that theory mm -hmm. and test them against experimental data. Now, right. uh, in the context of these theories, you know, there are hundreds of people working on them, uh, but there is no prediction that can be tested. They don't put skin in the game. And you ask yourself, right. how, that, how can that be mainstream? Well, there is a very simple reason for that, because 
if you have this sandbox where you can demonstrate the in intellectual virtuosity, you know, uh, intellectual gymnast, mathematical gymnastics, where you show that you are smart and you don't make predictions so that you cannot be proven wrong. It's all mathematics. That's the ideal setup for, you know, not putting skin in the game and getting high reputation because right. you claim that you're doing physics, but you can never be proven wrong. And right. great, so then you maintain your high reputation. You cannot ever make a mistake that will be shown by an experiment to be there, you know, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, I find that unfortunate because we are supposed to describe nature and, you know, it's just like a shoemaker that decides to bake cakes at some point, you know. So physicists that decide to be mathematicians, uh, you know, it's legitimate, but don't call yourself a physicist because a physicist is about trying to describe reality and putting uh, skin in the game, just like kids, you know, they get bruised, right. literally speaking, they put skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in the context of astrophysics, we do that because there is a lot of experimental data and we test theories and uh, it's all about, you know, uh, if you propose an idea, it's all about the idea standing up to the scrutiny of evidence. And right. uh, so what I find disturbing is that when I am guided by evidence that looks anomalous, I could be ridiculed, whereas at the same time, people that talk about extra dimensions that we've never had any clue for right. uh, are regarded safe uh, and, you know, they can talk about it in the mainstream, in career paths. Each other awards and uh, everything right. is fine. So I think mm -hmm. something is unhealthy in the current culture. I think uh, people that have that test have ideas that can be tested should be mm. the ones that are rewarded and people that talk about things that will not be tested in the next uh, millennium you know should be at the fringes of physics uh, because right. we cannot if we cannot test those ideas we can never make progress you know in, in fact there is a whole culture right now that says experimental testing is not even needed and Moreover, you will never be able, even in principle, to prove my theory wrong because it's so flexible. So any experimental result that I'll get, that you will get, I can accommodate by adjusting the parameters of the theory. So I say, what kind of a science is that where any, yeah. any experimental evidence can be, I mean, a theory of everything is a theory of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, this is, uh, that's very concerning. I mean, I, I left the academia in 2015, and that was not there at, at that time, at least at least where I was. Um, that's, I mean, that that is so much more of an ego-driven uh, career move than it is, a, you know, a pure science. I want to see what reality is when I poke it. Right. Um, right. Man, but, that but is, more, that's more not great. You know, the, this culture, some some people in this culture believe that they're carrying the torch of physics forward. And that's the way it's advertised to the public. And I find it really surprising because mm. what kind of a torch is that if it, you know, if it's not tested experimentally? Right. And at the same time, talking about anomalous evidence as if, you know, it takes some people out of their comfort zone, that is ridiculed. Like we are in a reverse uh, situation with respect to, to to where physics should be, right? And 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 holding up physics as a as as a way to look at reality, like mm -hmm. I, I I know I've talked to a bunch of friends about this, uh, and and I know you're of the same opinion. But we have to challenge this back. If the the worst thing that can happen to science is for it to become magic, 
because thing truth already is already a weird subject to even breach and what is real and if we right. can't have a tool a device to analyze what's really there um then we're not going to do this i mean having a, mi a scientific mindset is what got me through uh getting you know getting through my cigarette addiction i smoked cigarettes for 7 years and i had to use a a scientific mindset to cut through what delusions whatever the addiction was doing to my brain and my chemistry right you know so i mean that's the same thing we're putting ourselves into here right yeah so science is a way of life as you say i mean mm. you can think about any issue in life scientifically you know mm. when a pipe uh, is getting clogged at my home that you know together with the plumber we're trying to to find evidence for what the origin of the problem is and then solve it just the way i try to solve a problem with the dark matter in the universe you know it's uh, to me, uh, there is no distinction between, um, you know, uh, rely, the scientific method that we apply in academia to the to what I do in my daily life. I think about every phenomena that I see. I, I try to figure out what what is behind it, and um, in much the same way, I don't see a difference between uh, the work I do and my life, and and. Uh, uh, I don't see academia as being on a pedestal relative to the public. You know, I think the public should be able to understand whatever people are doing in academia. And, and therefore, you know, this idea that we should tell the public the results only when it, they are final, I think is, is mis, misguided because um, you give the public the illusion that the scientists always know what they are talking about. I, I sometimes feel like I'm the kid that says that, Look, the emperor has no clothes because most of the time in science, we don't know. There are multiple possibilities and uh, we need more evidence to be sure. Uh, and then, you know, if the public sees the process and realizes by how many steps we have to go before the evidence is conclusive and gives us the definite answer, you know, the, only then the public would appreciate the, the, the validity of the conclusion because otherwise it looks as if we are coming you know, like lectures in a class and telling the public what the answer is. And, and that is completely unnatural. Um, mm -hmm. And moreover, you know, when there are press conferences that announce the results, sometimes afterwards, the, the people that announce the results have to re retract it. So it looks completely artificial, uh, right. uh, declaring it as if we know it and then coming back and saying, oh, actually, we didn't really know it. Yeah, if we don't, if we don't make it clear that it's also scientific to say, I don't know, Right. Like how many of those people who are who are in that theoretical s s new culture would actually say that they don't know? Probably not a lot, right? Not many, no. Yeah, yeah, I, and and that's that's such a, I mean, and look, I, I you know, the scientific mindset has made me more humble and has made me like look at data and be like, I guess I'm wrong, you know, like that's right. That's no, one should okay. be willing to to be wrong because that's uh, part of the learning experience. You know, it, it, very often you don't know which path to take. And, uh, you know, when we complain about politicians not paying attention to evidence and uh, believing in uh, fantasies, you know, uh, you know, we should at least make sure that the, the academic house that we come from is, is like that. And mm. I'm not sure we, we can uh, we can uh, justify what's going on right now. Uh, uh, you know, it, the, the scientific culture should be based on evidence and not on prejudice. It should be open minded to innovation to ideas that may take you out of your comfort zone, because that's the way you make discoveries. And, uh, and, and that is why I'm, I'm uh, you know, making, doing all these interviews. That's why I wrote my book, because I'm trying to bring uh, 
the scientific culture back to where it's supposed to be. And, mm. uh, you know, we should see if I'm successful. Probably, uh, you know, it will not be easy, uh, but at least I, I express my concerns. Yeah, and I, I've been seeing you out there. I, I think you're, you're on the bleeding edge of trying to bring a new hypothesis that could change the way that we think about things. To the, I, I mean, I, I think of, I really do see such a large comparison to the days of Einstein and, and introducing that idea to now. And I think you're using a very similar approach of, of going out to the people, not don't don't stick with the people that think you're. And, and it's it's dicey because part of you doesn't want to just find a group that tells you you're right. And at the same time, you still want those people to be critical if you are wrong. So it's this balance that you're playing right. when you're on the front line of the, the scientific process here. Yeah, so the way I approach it is basically to describe the evidence. And, mm. you know, I, I, maybe I should mention a few details about that. Yeah, so let's break it o down. Oumuamua was the, the first object that came from outside the solar system that we discovered close to Earth. And uh, we knew that it's interstellar, that it came from outside the solar system, because it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. You know, when we launch a rocket uh, with a high enough speed, it escapes the pull of the Earth. And uh, the same is true about the sun. So this object was moving too fast to be bound to the sun like the planets are. And uh, it was discovered on October 19, 2017, uh, by a telescope called PANSTARS in Hawaii. And uh, was given the name Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. And uh, at first, astronomers thought it must be a comet, uh, mm. but uh, it didn't show any cometary tail. There was no gas or uh, dust around it. And uh, uh, moreover, as it was tumbling over eight hours, uh, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. So that mm. meant that as it was, uh, its, its uh, area on the sky was at least 10 times longer than it was wide. Um, but and, and, and just to just to cut in because I I do have some fun stuff here I I 3D printed some models uh, of of, oh. of this is this is the uh, I think what everyone is familiar with and this is the the model you're saying is not correct and it's and, not correct yeah but so, this and this is the thing that that I I am here to point out online is it's very important when you see this image online even the place I downloaded this model it's not stating at all that. It, it's showing an artist rendering. It's not saying it's an artist rendering. It makes right. it look like we pointed a telescope at this, and this is this is what it looks right. like. No, so the object was si the size of a football field, uh, a few hundred wow. feet, and uh, at, at the distance of a fraction of our separation from the sun, uh, the telescopes on Earth could not resolve it. We could not mm. get an image. But from the reflection of sunlight as it was tumbling, you know, and here is another mm. illustration, uh, from the reflection of sunlight, we could infer at the 90% confidence that intrinsically it's a flat object, pancake shape. So more, more like this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but of course, this object, uh, in, in some phase of its tumbling, it would look as if it uh, it's elongated like a cigar when you look at it from a distance. Right, like if we were looking yeah. at it like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the notion came from. Uh, ah. uh, so uh, anyway... Um, so that's already unusual about this object. And then uh, it also exhibited an extra push away from the sun as a result. Uh, and, and that push was declining as inversely with distance squared. And it couldn't be the result of uh, evaporating gases because we didn't see anything. So there wasn't right. any rocket effect acting on it. Uh, and the only way I could explain it was the reflection of sunlight from the object is giving it a push. 
And for that to be the case, the object had to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail. Sort and of like, uh, like yes, a light sail exactly. here? So this is the, 3D printed, this is the light sail uh, model here. Uh, nice. But yeah, so basically what, what you saw by the evidence was that it was this extremely thin, what was it, a millimeter thick? Yeah, less than a millimeter. Um, and uh, of course, you know, it doesn't need to be designed to be a sail. It could be just a surface layer of something else uh, that oh. was ripped apart. Okay. Or uh, just to give you an example, in uh, September 2020, the, the PanStars telescope, the same one that discovered the Oumuamua, discovered another object that was, uh, this time it was bound to the sun, roughly at the orbit of the Earth, and uh, it was given the name 2020 SO, and uh, the astronomers that discovered it realized that it actually came from the Earth, that in 1966, this oh, object this is, right. uh, is a rocket booster that was launched into space and had very thin walls. And they also recognized that it showed an excess push as a result of a reflection of sunlight because it, was, it had very thin walls mm -hmm. and it didn't have a cometary tail. These facts were known before it was realized that it's a rocket booster. So right. my point is, in this case, we know of an object that was artificially made by us, not designed to be a light sail, but mm -hmm. shared the qualities of Oumuamua. And so the question is, who produced Oumuamua? Right. Where does this where did this come from? I, I think you called it interstellar trash, and I, that's a. I, I think, like, if if I think about as a scientist, if I think about life in the in the universe, it, it's it, to me it, the most likely thing that I like to sit with is yes, there's probably other life out there, but are they alive now? Like when we right. are. Like our solar exactly. system is just one that happens to be in this habitable formation that we're lucky to be in. But when and where and it's... Yeah, so actually for 70 years we've been searching for radio signals. That was the traditional method for finding alien civilizations. And it's just like trying to speak on the phone with someone and you need the counterpart to be alive in order to have a conversation. Right. Uh, we can't have a conversation with the Mayan culture. Uh, because the, Mayan cult the Mayans are not uh, alive anymore. And so... Right. Um, uh, we can still find evidence that they existed from relics they left behind, and we can find them in archaeological digs. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so my suggestion is actually doing space archaeology and searching for relics of civilizations. You know, the sun is a relative latecomer. Most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And mm -hmm. if they had this, a technological civilization like, like us uh, that sent out... Uh, uh, equipment similar to Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons, mm. and others, um, you know, we, th that equipment will not be um, functional after billions of years and will be just space trash, as you say, but it right. could simply, it could imply uh, the existence of a civilization out there. And it's sort of like finding a plastic bottle on the beach among all the rocks that are naturally produced. Right. And, uh, it, you know, a simple way to tell whether it's a plastic bottle or a rock is to take an image. And that's, I think, the way to proceed in terms of how to identify relics in the future. And it's much better than looking for radio signals because uh, you can collect, you know, you can look at all the relics that were accumulating over time from civilizations that are dead by now. Right. Yeah, this is, uh, and this is, just the breakdown that you had in the book about just how rare this object was 
um, and and the actual odds once everything's stacked up, how large the odds were of of this being a rare object. Um, and, and, and the reality is, is that you really just only have the research you had in that glimpse of a moment, because this thing came in extremely fast. Uh, was it 200,000 miles per hour? Was that the, the number I got? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the speed that changed along its orbit, but uh, that that's another peculiar thing about this object, that it came from a, a special frame, and that frame is called the local standard of rest. It's the frame that you get to when you average the motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And so mm. uh, it's sort of like the local parking lot. And uh, this object was at rest in the local standard of rest. Only one in 500 stars is so much at rest. Mm. And the relative motion of the sun and this object was just the motion of the sun relative to the local standard of rest. So it's sort of, this object was like a buoy on the surface of the ocean and the solar mm. system was like a giant ship that bumped into it. And that leads to the question, why was it in that special frame? You know, clearly mm. that is a frame, in, if you find an object there, it cannot be associated with any star because the stars are moving relative to that frame. Um, but it could, for example, be a member of a grid of objects that uh, are used for uh, as coordinates when you navigate through interstellar space. You want to know where you are, and you do it relative to this object. Another possibility is that it's a member of uh, an array of objects used as relay stations for communication through space. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what it is, but it's definitely peculiar that it didn't move like stars do relative to the local standard of rest. Yeah, and... and... <laughs> It, it makes me think of just how massive the scale is of of the universe when we really start talking about how big everything is and 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 how spread out and wild the universe is for us to look at. Uh, it it yeah, also it's... makes me think that we have so many limited resources to actually dedicate towards looking at everything. I mean, it, it, you discuss it in the book, and, and it's just a reality of, of astronomy that there's not enough telescopes for the amount of people that want to look and never mind to have a full view on the entire sky all the time. Um, well, and so that's that, kind of, no, please go ahead. That, that's, uh, that was uh, the Panstars telescope was the first one that had the capability of uh, monitoring the sky to the sensitivity that allowed to, us to detect an interstellar object like Oumuamua that is mm -hmm. a few hundred feet in size. And you know, that dictates how much sunlight it reflects. And you don't right. know where it's coming from. So you need to monitor the entire sky. Now, Panstars was constructed because of a task that the, the US Congress gave to NASA to find all objects, or not all, but 90% of the objects above a size of 140 meters mm. um, that come close to Earth. Uh, because we know that the dinosaurs were killed by a giant rock roughly the size of the island of Manhattan uh, that approached them. and. Uh, once it hit the ground, uh, the fun stopped and three quarters of all life forms died. Uh, and so, you know, the dinosaurs had huge bodies. So you might think that's very useful for survival, but it wasn't really when a rock came from the sky. And we have the human brain, which is much smaller than the body of a dinosaur. But nevertheless, it's much more helpful for survival because we can design telescopes that would identify big rocks when they're heading our way. And then we can decide to deflect them, to nudge them away from Earth. And so that, you know, identifying such objects was the purpose of Panstars. And in the process of monitoring the sky, it found Oumuamua. And actually, in less than three years, there would be a better, uh, much more sensitive 
observatory called the Vera Rubin uh, mm. observatory that would be uh, that would be able to detect Oumuamua-like objects once once a month or so. You know, the, uh, wow. and um, it could identify uh, two thirds or sixty percent of of all the objects um, that um, are bigger than 140 meters, roughly the size of Oumuamua. Um, and about 1% of the size of the rock that killed the dinosaur. So we are wow. really getting to very small scales now. And um, so um, altogether, this Vera Rubin Observatory will be a very good alert system for interstellar objects that uh, we can then uh, observe and check, uh, you know, which one looks more like an artificial object than, than a mm -hmm. rock. And of course, if we find one, you know, we might land on it and, and import right that, you know, try to understand the technology and perhaps, you know, that would give us uh, a leap in our crazy. technological advance. Yeah, no, that would be wild. Um, it just makes me, like, we could have missed so many interstellar objects already because we right. just don't have the capability to see it. Um, yeah, so the, the small ones, we, the, smaller than the size of a football field, we, we can't really see within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun unless they come very close to Earth mm. or they appear as meteors, you know. Right. But, um, it's too late at that point. <laughs> and also very fast ones. You know, there could be objects flying at a fraction of the speed of light, and mm. we just don't notice them because astronomers dismiss these things. That when something flies so fast across the sky, it, it, nobody pays attention. Right. No, this is uh, this is really exciting stuff. And um, I, I guess what what is the next step? What is what do we need to do? I, I think you, you're regardless of how far you push this ball. I think what you are doing with, with this book and pushing this hypothesis is getting more of us to start thinking about the idea uh, that's out there and potentially can get a movement to get more eyes in the sky, right? So we actually have a chance to catch the next one. Um, yeah, no, so we will definitely catch more because mm. the Vera Rubin Observatory will identify many more and also pan stars, you know, every few years we'll find one. But uh, my point is not so much about finding more uh, as it is about what to do. Uh, and mm. uh, so my re strong recommendation is to uh, design a mission that will bring a camera very close to such an object that looks as weird as Oumuamua. And, you know, uh, the uh, Vera Rubin Observatory might find such an object uh, a year in, in advance of it passing close to us. So uh, we have a year to launch a spacecraft to, to come close to it if we know its orbit. Uh, right. and, so know, we're looking to launch a, a spacecraft well, that's uh, as soon my, as we notice it. That's my recommendation with a camera okay. that will take a close-up photo because I think that's the way for us to conclusively learn about I the nature it. of such an object. And uh, of course, Oumua, there is no reason to obsess with Oumuamua because by now mm. it's a million it's times fainter than yeah. it was close to the sun and it's too far away. We can't chase it. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I said, the, there is no reason to expect us to have had uh, some privileged time in 2017. I mean, these things happen all the time and we happen mm. to look at one. And so there will be more. And uh, we should just keep our eyes open and not assume that it's always rocks. It's right. never aliens, like some of my <laughs> colleagues said. And it, it's weird to think that it's that difficult of an explanation. You know, I'm, I'm already okay with the idea. So for me, I just wanted to jump on and learn more. Um, is it because it's mixed in with sci-fi? Is it like, what What do you think, where at this point with, you've just done 300 recently and you've done so many more over, over all this time, where, where do you think this is stemming?
Well, I would have expected some of my colleagues to hug me and say, great point, Avi. Let's, uh, you know, put some te more telescope time, search for more objects of, the, of this type. And the next weird one, we'll try to collect as much data as possible and uh, perhaps even launch a camera that will take a photograph. I would expect that to be sort of embraced. You know, why not? You know, science is supposed right. to be exciting. But instead they say, oh, this is bad for science. Let's not even talk about it. It's, uh, you know, it's just a rock. Stop speaking about it. It's an embarrassment to discuss it. It's really, you know, so um, I find that disturbing because, um, you know, there is nothing that appears to be more compelling. I mean, people have tried to explain uh, the anomalies of Oumuamua and the scenarios that people came up with as natural origin. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you the examples. One is a, a, a hydrogen iceberg. Uh, so that when it evaporates, you don't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. And the problem with that scenario is that a hydrogen iceberg the size of a football field will get completely evaporated in a relatively short time scale by absorbing starlight, and it would not survive mm -hmm. the journey. Not to speak about the fact that we've never seen such a thing. Uh, right. Then there was this uh, suggestion, maybe it's a cloud of dust particles that are loosely bound, you know, like a dust mm -hmm. bunny, a hundred times less dense than air. And the problem with that suggestion is, you know, it doesn't have the material strength to withstand the heating to hundreds of degrees when it comes close to the sun. Right. Um, right. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a, a fragment, a, a shrapnel from the disruption of a bigger object that passed close to a star. And here again, you would end up with an elongated cigar-shaped object rather than pancake-shaped object. So these are the possibilities put on the table, and I say, they don't look very compelling because each of them has a flow. And, you know, un until someone brings in something that looks, that explains all the anomalies, um, you know, we should at least allow for the possibility that it's artificial to stay on the table, right? right. And uh, to me, it's common sense. And why should we have prejudice? Why should we always, you know, uh, the point is that this hypothesis motivates collecting more evidence, more data. Uh, saying that it's never aliens would argue that, you know, we should just stay in our comfort zone and never check. And uh, that to me is disturbing because obviously if you're not willing to discover wonderful things, you will never find them. Mm. Well, and, and what do you think about this scenario? Uh, let's say we, a few years go by and there is more of this evidence and, and the scientific community isn't there and I know you'll be there, and I know I'll be there, but if they're not there to talk about it, what does that do to, from a philosophical sense, what does that do to science? What does that do to just everything that we, that we know of today? Well, I think it will be a problem for science because this kind of uh, objects will come back again. And, you know, if we have the Vera Rubin Observatory, then there will be many of them discovered. And... You know, you can ignore one, you can ignore two, you can ignore three, but once you have a dozen and they all look uh, peculiar, you know, someone will, you know, there would be some, someone somewhere that will not be silenced, okay? And mm. that someone somewhere might get more data and it would look as if indeed it's weird. And at some mm. point, you know, so if we talk about decades from now, you know, uh, centuries from now, at some point it will become clear, you know, and even if it's of natural origin, 
um, it must be something that we've never seen before because these were the suggestions brought to the table. And so right. my point is we will learn something new because there need to be factories of, of these unusual objects. And right. given that we will learn something new no matter what, why not just collect more evidence? And I right. think it will be so compelling that people, you know, we are not in the dark ages in the sense that uh, telescopes will continue to collect information about the sky because they are motivated by something else to find those astro asteroids that endanger the Earth, you know, the near-Earth objects. And so mm. they will monitor the sky and not necessarily discriminate against objects of this type. And therefore, these would be found. And then uh, at some point, it will be an embarrassment if, if the scientific community just shies away from each and every one of them. Uh, and mm. I, I, I cannot imagine a situation where there would be a, a global conspiracy to just ignore these things and say they are rocks because that would resemble a caveman uh, seeing a cell phone and saying that it's a shiny rock again and again and again, you know, and at some point, you know, it would not make much sense, you know. So even if the philosophers put uh, Galileo in house arrest, even though they did that, mm -hmm. eventually the truth came out, you know, and um, that's my, ho I just hope that it will come out when I'm still alive. Uh, that's all. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and it, it, I think the, it's a great plan. I mean, at this point, it's it. We've seen this play out through history. We talk Galileo. We've talked about Einstein and, and all these other. Uh, there's there's plenty of others. Um, it's it's a game of waiting it out so that the idea just loses steam. Really, that's that's you're basically like this. There's a huge, really good possibility this this is coming. So get ready. And everyone's you know everyone's like I don't know if I'm ready for this. Basically, is. <laughs> That's right. what they're telling you with their but, but responses. You know, it's unfortunate. I, I'll tell you why this is unfortunate. It's not just a hypothesis about something. It's this question is the most fundamental question that will have a huge impact on society. If we find mm. if we find that there are objects of other civilizations out there, it will change the way we think about our place in the universe, about our aspirations to space, to exploration of space. It will it could affect religious and uh, philosophical uh, beliefs that we have. Uh, and the, the way we view humanity, you know, what what is our future? And um, it's just a huge impact. I don't think there is any other scientific question that is more important. And so I call it Oumuamua's wager. You know, given the significance of the answer, we just cannot ignore it. Uh, it's right. just a mistake to ignore it. Now, if it was the nature of dark matter, on which, by the way, we invested a thousand times more money to search for, you know, so even though we invested a thousand times more money in, in, in search in the dark for the nature of dark matter, we haven't found what it is. But think about it, even if we found what it is, if it's a, an axion or a weakly interacting massive particle or whatever, mm. it would have zero impact on our daily lives, mm. right? And we invest yeah. those hundreds of millions. We detected gravitational waves. What effect that, that, does that have on our daily life? Right. Practically nothing. And we invested a billion dollars in that. So how come we invest hundreds of thousands of dollars of federal funds to search for technological signatures, you know, compared to hundreds of millions or billions in other directions? And that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. And given that the public is so excited about this question, how is it possible that the scientific community will not only shy away from it and ridicule a pe person like myself, but also ignore altogether the public's uh, interest. You know, the, I just cannot understand this situation. And that's, you know, I've never seen something like that. Uh, okay, that where there is mm. a, such a fundamental question that the public cares about, 
and the scientists starve the public, even though they have the instruments to address it. And um, the, this uh, starvation is evident from the popularity of my book. You know, the mm -hmm. reason that my book gets so much attention is that the pu public never hears a scientist talk like me. Right. No, and, and I mean, if we're all looking, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I know I'm looking for something to hook my hat onto for what we're going to do to have a fantastic future. The world has not been that great this last year. And the, the timing of everything, I mean, even if the, at the basic, uh, everyone wants to know how we're going to get out of this, like we have this object come through and we and and, and we, like it's there it's it's looking at us and we have this opportunity just to open our minds for a second and we right. don't want to it's wild well but the public does and the public does the amazing thing is that when my paper came out uh, in 2018 uh, it was just around the time of the state of the union address of donald mm. trump and uh, my my uh, paper got more uh, publicity, more coverage in the media than the State of the Union at the bravo, time. Bravo, bravo. On the same day. <laughs> and uh, I was asked about it by uh, Michael Smirkonish from uh, CNN. And uh, I told him, you know, the public is probably looking for uplifting news from the sky. You yeah. know, and I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if that's why even now people are very excited. And by the way, why should science be boring? You know, why, yeah. why can't science be exciting? Here is a question that we can address with existing instruments and telescopes that will captivate kids all over the world mm -hmm. that could become scientists as a result, you know. And by right. the way, when I wrote my book, I said to the publisher that my hope is that there will be one kid somewhere that will decide to become a scientist after reading my book. And then uh, a week ago, I had uh, a woman from Malawi in, uh, in Africa write an email to me and said, she said, uh, uh, your book is great. I, I might, it, it might inspire me to become an astronomer. And I told her the story about the publisher, and I said, "Are you the one? Are you are you that person that I was hoping for?" And she said, uh, "Maybe." So I'm already uh, satisfied. Then, then you're you are winning, my friend. <laughs> um, man, I, there's so many people. I think the the. You know, our listeners, you know, we've got a, a nice community here. It's people that, uh, you know, grew up and found STEM as a class, a hard thing. Tests gave them anxiety. And anytime they think of, of going back to school, it gives them stress. And uh, other people who, who went through the gauntlet of STEM education and now don't work in the field that they went to school for. Um, I think there's so many of us that want to explore different things. A lot of us found our, ourselves out of it because we just found our a place in science that just didn't fit us the, the the passion that came with why we got into it in the first place right, right. um and i think that's that's our mission here is to try and get those people back into exactly. where they exactly yeah where where the passion connects with the science and well uh, so you see a, a lot of scientists uh, elevate science on a pedestal and make it uh, introduce a disconnect between the public and the scientific mm -hmm. endeavor and that i think is a big mistake uh, there should they should be on the same level. The public should understand what science is doing and the public should affect what science is doing. We can't just be in an ivory tower where we uh, research uh, problems that have no connection to the public because, mm. you know, uh, like it, it may resemble asking how many angels can sit on a, on a pin, you know, and uh, frankly, many of the topics being discussed now are, are resemble that. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's misleading uh, to tell the public science is 
carrying you know society forward when we are dealing with how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin uh, what is relevant is to say to the public what what do you care about and if the public says I care about the question of are we alone then try to use your instruments put the billion dollars in that direction rather than in detecting gravitational waves or uh, dark matter I mean obviously these are important questions and we should follow them but and, and in fact my point is that there is even a culture that doesn't engage at all in, in, in the dialogue with experiments. So yeah. we got into a situation that is completely removed from the public, which I find to be disturbing and I think it should be remedied. And, and most importantly, I think that innovation should come back to, to academia in a major way and so that academia should be significantly more innovative than the commercial sector rather than being comparable or, or even lower at the level of innovation. Yeah, and, and uh, do you see uh, academia being able to adjust to that? Is it going to be something completely different? Is there going to need to be something that comes out? Uh, are the businesses well, I think it's the, reward, it's the reward system that needs to mm. change, you know, and currently the reward system, like allocation of funds uh, through federal grants mm. or allocation of prizes or honors and so forth, are geared more towards um, established things that were already known, you know, nuances on known themes, mm. rather than encouraging people to embark on completely new endeavors, you know, and, and as a result, people don't take risks. If, if people were realize, if scientists were realizing that there is more to gain uh, by going in risky directions, they would do it. But mm. the, the culture right now cultivates a completely different approach. And that's partly because um, many of these selection committees are populated by the same people that uh, you know promote this culture. And uh, it's a lot about echo, building echo, echo chambers of students and mm. postdocs that repeat the same mantras that the advisors uh, said for years so that it will make the, the voice louder and uh, the, the you know the me the mentor the main uh, professor will get more recognition and and, and uh, appreciation and right. know, that's not really the goal of of doing science we want to understand nature not not to to improve our self esteem yeah no it's um I'll be interested to see how things shape out with that I I think one of the things that I'm looking to try and do is free up, find a way to free up scientists that are stuck in debt to get them to free up so they can think about the things that they want to do. Um, I mean, my, I myself, I'm still paying off my student loans, um, so I know what that does to, I, I've had to work very hard to do this on a regular basis, to get this show, to, to do what I want to do, just because the, the reality of loans, and I think that's the, this next generation that you're talking about, um, that's a big problem for all of us. And uh, we are there. That's the problem ahead of us. That's what we've got to solve. So um, in my way, that's what I'm hoping to do is, is, is enable more of those people. We'll, we'll see how that, how that turns out. But, uh, well, the other issue is, of course, that there are more people trained in the sciences than those that can get a job. And, mm. uh, and, and so there is an imbalance between the, the, the a, a number of available jobs and the number of people being trained. And, uh, you know, and I, I do think that science is so important for the future of the nation that uh, it should receive more funding, uh, frankly speaking, than it used to in the distant past. Because by now, uh, of course, the, the science advisor the, uh, to the Biden administration is now in a cabinet position, which is a very good uh, development. It should have mm -hmm. been like that for, you know, for decades. And, yeah. But at the same, you know, that's a political uh, 
arrangement, but the, at the same time, there should be much more funding allocated for science, uh, mm -hmm. not just incrementally increase, but uh, you know, an order of magnitude increase, because sure. science is really uh, helping society in many different ways. Yep, and and so much. I mean, not not to get off of that tangent here, but so so much of what has happened with the pandemic and with just the inability to explain the the actual sciences ahead of us, like the inability for us to say we don't know yet, we're going to figure it out in the beginning, was such a, a huge blow to the confidence in in anything that would have become a vaccine eventually, or like we we as leaders in this country just did not have any kind of scientific way. And it's been very frustrating. I mean, I've talked to plenty of yeah. my friends in the scientific community. I'm sure you've had the frustration too, just to see it right. keep rolling down the hill. It's almost like right. we were better off like the Spanish flu earlier where we didn't yeah. know any better. Well, so there are two things. Um, one is that, um, you know, uh, scientists should have been allowed to enter Wuhan uh, early on so that they, it would have helped them diagnose the nature of the disease and, and develop a vaccine even earlier, you know, because right. obviously the vaccine is the key. Uh, so sharing of information, which is a fundamental facet of science, uh, you know, argues for international collaboration. Politics mm -hmm. should not block international collaboration on science. And that's an important lesson because right now we share our faith globally. You know, a virus coming from one country affects another. Right. And therefore, sharing of information is essential mm -hmm. for all of us to cope with it. And unfortunately, that was not the case initially. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, honesty and being humble, you know, not mm -hmm. uh, uh, trying to claim that we understand something when we don't. And, uh, you know, uh, evolving our perceptions of what the risk is as, as more and more data comes along, you know. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I learned from astronomy, from, uh, you know, from the sky is uh, to stay modest. You know, we realize the universe is so huge and we are so small. Uh, also, we live for such a short time, just a hundred mm. years or so out of uh, 10 billion years of the age of the universe. And, you know, we, we are born into this stage uh, without a script, we are not told what uh, the meaning of life is, and uh, so we are, you know, we are actors in a play, uh, but without a script. So, you know, science allows us to figure out what is on that stage. You know, how as big as it is, you know, clearly we are very small, uh, a very small component, and we should be modest. And what, I, what we were discussing before about uh, my book is basically trying to figure out if there are other actors on the stage mm. and what are they doing. You know, right. that's also a very elementary question. And why would my colleagues say, oh, there are no other actors, you know, we are special, unique, or give me extraordinary evidence that there are other actors and only then I'll give you funding or support. You know, that should not be the approach. Uh, mm. We should just try to, you know, invest uh, effort to, to find evidence for something that we already know exists, which is us, okay? And yeah. uh, look for it elsewhere. And uh, uh, so altogether, this sense of modesty, we, don't, we, we know so little, you know, the knowledge that we have is an island in an ocean of ignorance. And it's a learning experience. So we can make mistakes along the way, you know, and not fully understand things. And, but it's not about us. It's about learning on, on the world around us. And, right. you know, the same applies to the vaccine. Initially, we didn't know enough. And of course, as time went on, there was more and more data. And mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, the political system should have been geared around the knowledge that keeps accumulating. So early on, you have to be very cautious because the uncertainty is huge. Right. But as, the, as you narrow down the uncertainty, as you know that masks are helpful, then you start making policy based on that. And right. So all I'm saying is that, you know, science encourages international collaboration. That's mm-hmm. point number one. And second, that it's evidence-driven. And so right. before you have the evidence, you should be modest and not... A, not decide about policy until you know what to do. Mm. Yeah, no, and 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 one of the things that it, we, it just happened before this phone call happened, but uh, SpaceX just landed their Starship SN10 uh, for the first time, 10 kilometer hop. They've tested a new technology that's never been done before on their third try, and they're one of the best. That's why we follow them so closely because this this they are a pure innovation driven like company. They they fail fast, they learn fast, and they, they get it done. And uh, literally before this phone call, an hour before this phone call, it was still a question on whether or not going to Mars is a question. And now I'm still processing, like, it, it's they're, they, they figured it out. Now they're just going to keep going. And it, it's the, having those milestones and, and being aware of it is so wild. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What is, and, uh, yeah. One of the things I should caution about uh, with respect to going to Mars is that uh, – you know, on Mars there is no uh, atmosphere and there is no strong uh, magnetic field that would protect people from the dangerous cosmic rays. That mm-hmm. these are energetic particles that do a lot of harm to our bodies if we are exposed to them uh, for a year or so, and right. uh, that's a, 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 a you know a risk that one has to attend to be, before sending people that way, because otherwise they will find their death uh, within a year. Right. And standing on the on the surface of Mars, Mars. It, it was not evident from the movie, the film, uh, The Martian, mm. but it is a major uh, issue uh, how to protect people, the human body, from mm. uh, cosmic rays. One of my favorite solutions to that is is using the regolith itself. It's already it's already right. doing it and going underground. I think that yes. makes the most sense. I mean, I, I personally, I'm waiting for the the combination of 3D printing and space to really happen, so that manufacturing can happen anywhere. And that that will enable so many different things. Um, that's yes. that's the, the the near future I'm looking forward well, to. Well, we started from uh, being in caves, right? And we will mm-hmm. end up uh, in being being in caves uh, on Mars. The first Martians came out of caves. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, Avi, thank you so much uh, for being on. I, we're we're running out of time here, but uh, um, let's close out with a final message here. Um, what uh, obviously people can find your book. Uh, it's in it's in physical format. It's an ebook. I, I've read the audio book. I'm still going through it right now. Um, the book is great because it's got a lot of the the actual data in there, which I loved. Um, what, what's what's your message for everybody? My m- main message is stay curious and stay young in your attitude. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. a matter of age, and mm-hmm. a lot of people lose their curiosity as they grow up. Uh, uh, it's sort of like losing your sharp edge uh, yeah. as you bump against the walls uh, throughout your life, and I try to maintain my childhood curiosity, and people that know me would tell you that I pretty much am the same as I was uh, as a teenager, and uh, I really advise uh, everyone to maintain that. I, I was asked by the Harvard Gazette, what is the one thing you would change about the world? And I said, I would like my colleagues in academia to behave more like kids, you know, <laughs> because uh, kids are fun to play with. You know, the, mm. you just explore, the, you try to learn about the world, and sometimes you get bruised, but but it's all a fun experience, you know, it's, it's exciting. 
And yeah. the science should be just like that. Mm. Avi, thank you so much. Um, where where can people find is is the book pretty much everywhere? Where where can people find? Yeah, it? Is there a everywhere. website they should go to? In every um, store that sells books, you can find it, and uh, it's going out to 26 uh, editions in 23 languages worldwide, and it's already bestseller in uh, many countries. And uh, I really hope the message will will come out. And, um, and and of course, you can find more stuff about what I work on and my Scientific American articles that I publish once uh, every week or two. Uh, on my website at Harvard. Uh, if you just Google my name, you will find it. Fantastic. Avi, you are doing uh, what we are, is our mission here, which is spreading love and spreading science. So we, we appreciate you. Your message is getting around the world. Um, it's exciting. Thank you again for joining us. Everybody, make sure to spread love and spread science. Be well, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Today in Space. Thanks for having me.